Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. Although he's one of France's most widely read and popular authors of the 20th century, Boris Vian has never won the international recognition gained by friends and contemporaries such as Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. Even within France, apart from a few doctoral studies, his work has remained outside the consideration of academia and to some degree is still frowned upon by scholars. The closest most English-speaking audiences would have come to Vian's work is probably Michel Gondry's 2004 film, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which drew inspiration from two of Vian's novels. More recently, Gondry has directed a film of Vian's most famous book, Les Coups des Jours. Titled Mood Indigo for English-speaking audiences, the film stars Audrey Tautou and gets its US and UK cinema release this summer. A recent translation of Vian's poems and short stories, If I Say If, published by the University of Adelaide Press, means that for the first time, all of Vian's short stories are available in English. Alistair Rolls is Associate Professor of French Studies at the University of Newcastle, New South Wales, and co-edited the book. I spoke to him over the phone about Vian's life and work. Born in 1920 at Ville d'Avray, a bourgeois town on the western edge of Paris, Boris Vian was raised in a world of imagination fuelled by literature and society games. His parents were well off and his early life was carefree and comfortable, but in 1929 the stock market crash ended the Vian fortune. The Vians were forced to move into the caretaker's cottage of the family home so they could rent out the main house. At the age of 12, Vian was diagnosed with a heart condition that consigned him to his bedroom and to the care of his mother. Boris's health improved in his teenage years and he went on to become a brilliant scholar who reputedly had read everything. He was clearly very talented from an early age and then he had a sort of... Uh, he, he, one, of his early next, one of his next door neighbours when he was a child was Judy Menuhin. And Menuhin, he used to play chess together and he... He, had, he was very sharp, he was very mathematically alert, very musically alert early on. And he, he was brought up in a, in, a, in a very culturally alert environment. So he was exposed early on to, um, to, all, to opera and all kinds of classical music. But, but I kept coming across the expression, il a toulou, he's read everything. And then, well, no one's read everything. And then the people in the, in the Boris Vion Foundation in Paris very quickly took me aside and said, look, you have to understand that you know, we, we publish more now than we used to publish. So back in the 1920s, it was possible. It was not possible to possibly read everything, but you could you could give a damn good shot. So he, he had this ongoing heart condition, which is, you know, which he had from early on. But not, I think it wasn't just the heart condition that that stifled. You know, it was then people's reaction to the heart condition, and notably his mother. So he was certainly over mothered when he was young and I think he rebelled against that and then you had this overwhelming thesis which is such that Vion sort of killed himself by living yeah you know he lived too hard and brought about his own his own death. Boris's obsession with literature and language led to him cultivating a passion for punning and wordplay. He also began to learn English in his spare time. Music also played a major role in Boris's teenage life. 
At the age of 16, he developed a passion for jazz and went on to become not only a competent trumpeter and band leader, but a highly regarded critic and editor for jazz magazines. In the immediate post-war years, Villon could be found in the trendy hotspots of Saint-Germain-des-Prés, rubbing shoulders and exchanging ideas with other luminaries of the area, or simply playing his trumpet in the lively clubs. Les habitués du tabou auront certainement reconnu l'indicative de Boris Villon. Pour commencer notre émission, écoutez d'abord Bézine Street Blues. It was around this time that Villon's first literary works began to be published. In 1945, he signed a contract with French publishing house Gallimard, and later that year his first novel appeared in bookshops. In 1946, Villon created Storm and had his first commercial success with J'irai cracher sur votre I Spit on Your Graves. Ostensibly a hard-boiled American crime thriller credited to an unknown African-American writer, Vernon Sullivan, with Villon's translator, the book was written as a wager with the young publisher Jean Dallouin. Graphically violent, the story revolves around a light-skinned black man who acts out an act of revenge against a small southern town. J'irai cracher sur votre is now viewed as a parody of the hard-boiled genre, but Alistair Rolls sees it as having much deeper resonances. At the time that was written, you have a, you have a whole new tradition of French crime fiction which is beginning. It was something called the Série Noire um, by a guy called Marcel Duhamel. He was at Gallimard. And basically, it's always construed as being very straightforwardly a case of American fiction, American thrillers, being very, very popular in Paris. And so the prisons, I suppose, after the four years of occupation at the hands of the Nazis, finally get what they've been crying out for, which is these lovely American novels. And the translation just is a vehicle for them to get their hands on them, which is a wonderful oversimplification, I think, of what's happening, where, where in fact you have these novels being translated very cleverly by Duhamel to create an allegory of the French condition in the, in the immediate post-war years and so the Série Noire itself is very much a parody already of, of crime fiction so it's a use of crime fiction for a particular end and I think when then Villon then gets accused of being simply a parody of the Série Noire this black series um, by creating a black character I think he's doing something much more clever and much more reflexive so he's actually doing a parody of something that's already a parody. And the, 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 the wager is that um, Jean Duhalluin Duhal says he's running a, a publishing house called Scorpion Editions. And he wants to set up something to rival these money-making classics that are being tunneled out by Duhamel at Gallimard. So Villon said, well, I'll write you one. Give me a couple of weeks. I'll write you one of these things. And he goes off into the countryside with his friends and... Um, Two weeks later, he produces this text, um, which he then pretends to have been, you know, says it's written by this American, um, black American author, called Van Sullivan. Um, what I think is interesting is that there's, James Hadley Chase wrote No Orchids for Miss Blandish, uh, which is the, um, one of the first novels produced in the Série Noire by Marcel Duhamel. And James Hadley Chase wrote his novel, uh, reputedly again, um, in about the same time frame as Villon, in about two weeks. So there's always a tradition of writing these books very quickly 
so he's almost he's almost chosen to write his book in exactly the same time frame as the novels he's he's apparently parodying. So one of the ideas is that. Um, Bernard Salem is just a huge joke and that Villon himself was a joker and a prankster and that somehow the war years are blotted out of um, Villon's writing. Whereas I think the, what Vernon Sullivan does, I think, is really attune us to the fact that Villon was actually part writing allegorically about the end of the Second World War. I think in Le Cume des Jours, you have a very clear allegory of departure of the German occupying forces from Paris. And Vernon Sullivan, I think, plays into this. Before being banned in France for obscenity, Gire Crachet topped the bestseller list in Paris and sold around a half a million copies. Vion went on to write a further three successful novels under the Vernon Sullivan pen name. At the same time as the publication of Gire Crachet, the first of Vion's more literary novels, Le Cun des Jours, reached the presses. Although it sold in relatively small numbers, it was nominated for the prestigious Prix de la Pléiade. Alistair Rolls considers this to be the first of a quartet of books penned under Villon's own name that can be linked to form a coherent body of work. The four novels themselves that he writes, um, when my PhD thesis was, was trying to tie them together to form a tetralogy, which I, which I did via the love or the failed love story of the male protagonist from the from Lincoln du Jour and the woman he, he, doesn't, he doesn't fall in love with. I, I strung, strung those together to make it a, a coherent series, but otherwise those novels have been seen to be quite separate. So you have um, Le Cume des Jours, which is the, the fanciful, um, very wordplay, very jocular novel with love gone wrong and the creation of this Garden of Eden which, and the original sin of, and everything going wrong. And then you have a novel called Autumn in Peking, where you have this thing set in the desert and my thesis there has been that it's a, it's a Parisian novel. So I think that second one is the most clearly surrealist of the, of the novels. So I think it's very much a very strong allegory of Paris itself and, and of the Paris streets. From then on, you go into more a, a book which is seen as being much more science fiction driven, which is The Red Grass, where people tend to go on about H.G. Uh, Wells an awful lot. And then you end up with one called La Rache which is... Um, supposed to be really, it's much more heavily to do with psych, psychoanalysis. So you have these four novels that are seen as being really quite different, in fact. One of the things I, I found interesting was that with the last two novels, um, in particular, which have, people haven't worked on very much, was um, when, when I saw um, Michel Gondry's The Eternal, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I immediately when I saw that film, I said, well, that, that film is a rewrite of Boris Vian. And it seemed to me to be conflating the red grass and... Um, and, the, and the, the last one, the heart snatcher, La Rashka, in a very interesting way. And I, I wrote a piece suggesting that um, Gondry was, was actually adapting the, two last, the last two boys, the young novels. And I was um, really quite excited to see that um, Gondry was, took the chance to, to, to make Le Cume des Jours, because it's almost proving my thesis. So there, there are other people who've seen links between these novels, which otherwise have been seen to be reason disparate and dif- difficult to string together, if you like, logically and coherently, because he, he, because he doesn't fit with a theme. Although at the heart of the left-bank literary scene and a contributor to Sartre and Beauvoir's Les Temps Modernes, Vion remained outside the main thrust of the existentialist movement. Some of the columns he wrote for Les Temps Modernes were openly critical, especially as the magazine leaned increasingly towards the Communist Party. Around this time, Sartre began an affair 
with Vion's first wife, Michelle Leglise, and Vion and Leglise eventually divorced in the early 1950s. Sartre himself is parodied in Le Cume des Jours as the famous writer John Solpart, an obsession of one of the main characters in the book. So although existentialism plays a part in Vion's first serious novel, it isn't an overriding theme, and pre-war surrealism has a far greater influence in this book and his later novels. It seems to me that he doesn't fit into the existentialist um, movement happily, in the same way that, well, not in quite the same way, but people like Alasbeck can do. A lot of people get uh, sort of corralled into the existentialist movement, um, which in a sense was like a, was a fashion which has possibly lasted less time than than people people seem to think. It was a fairly um, fairly short-lived thing at the end of the Second World War. Clearly, um, Sartre goes on to be a huge, huge figure. But um, people like Camus never claimed to be an existentialist, and Vion certainly wasn't an existentialist. I can't see much more than a parody there. There is existentialism in Vion, but only in the sense that he's a sort of left-wing atheist. It's not a, it's not a huge underpinning. But um, surrealist stuff, I think, is much more interesting. Um, I think that there's a very serious debt to surrealism which gets overlooked in Vion's work. So the whole idea of this of this universe where word plays generate events and, and people's desires. I think David Meakin, a scholar, Vion scholar, um, describes as a desire-shaped universe. And I think that's right. At the start of um, Le Cune des Jours, you, the character Colin desires something and that thing then just simply happens in front of him. And, and that whole debt goes back to the surrealists and the idea of walking in the streets generates events. So, so if, you, if you're going to put him in any camp, which is very hard, because most Viennists Viennist would tell you that he, you, you can't put him in a camp, I would say that the surrealism is, is an interesting one. Vion's appropriation of Sartre hints at another literary method he employed, the repurposing of external texts from a number of authors and sources to extend the boundaries of his art. This is a theme Alistair Rolls has explored by focusing on intertextuality, references to external texts, and intratextuality, threads throughout the four novels, which connect them into a four-part whole. The approach I took was, I was attempting not to use intertextuality in a deconstructive sense at the time, purely because I didn't have the intellectual baggage to do it when I was starting my PhD. But I did sense immediately that the references were not, were not flippant. They, were, they weren't they weren't simplistic, whereas some um, people generally dealing with stuff like that would, would trace the text. They would say, okay, this, this, this is a reference to, and they would content themselves with actually, with actually tracing the reference to its, to its hypertext or whatever. Whereas what I wanted to do was to try and place it in, term, in, in some kind of ca- narrative. The things that Vion's four novels had in common more than anything, if you like, rather than a literary school like surrealism or existentialism, was in fact the intertextual way in which they were made up. So the very specific way he uses referencing and the way his, his use of references develops. So perhaps you have a slightly more naive use of referencing, which is perhaps a little more um, spattergun perhaps in Le Cune du Jour, but it becomes much more targeted as the text develop. Was, I mean, in Le Cune du Jour, it struck me that Excuse me, in Luton Pékin, for example, when when the characters are about to go from Paris into Exopotamia, as he calls it, and there are some interesting references which are quite cleverly hidden in the text to um, to Camus, the outsider, which of course happens. A lot of the action there happens on the beaches of Algiers. Then you have a, an interesting 
way of the text through its hidden references guiding you through to this this exit from Paris into the into a desert. That in a sense could also be read quite cleverly too to suggest that in fact but well perhaps perhaps Camus' outsider is in fact not simply an Algerian text, but is actually perhaps more more Parisian than you might take it for. So you can then read backwards as well and say how is Vion's use of textuality actually offering you a critical way of renewing your engagement with the text that he's referencing. In the early 50s, Vion expanded his range of interests to include theatre, writing plays, musicals and opera librettos. He also began to appear as an actor on stage and screen. At the same time, Vion still pursued his passion for jazz and popular music, moving away from his trumpet playing to writing lyrics to popular cabaret-style songs which won him enormous critical acclaim. While frequently light-hearted in tone, Vion's lyrics show a paradoxical unease with modernity, and a pathos found even more intensely in some of his poetry. Je bois systématiquement pour oublier les amis de ma femme. Je bois systématiquement. He's a paradox in that sense. He's certainly someone who's he's forward-looking. He's um he's he's very interested in technical innovation. He's he's himself an inventor, and he's a great embracer of of science fiction. And yet, at the same time, someone who, for whom, the future seems bleak. So I think he's a paradox, and I think one of the ways that comes across, perhaps, is um, is it the, the songs, and also the poetry, in particular, some of the poetry, in particular, um, one anthology called "Je voudrais pas crever," meaning I don't want to die. Um, you get this first person coming out. So you have a real tension between between the third, the very third person texts, the very devianized texts that are the novels, where everything passes through this veil of parody, this veil of referencing, where he's trying to put as many screens, if you like, between himself um, and and the reader as, as he can, despite the fact that the references often seem to be. Um, towards his friends, his entourage, which sort of suggests that he's he's blurring the lines between his his lived reality and his novels. I think the opposite is true. I think the I think these serve actually to um to fictionalise the fiction, to make it much more reflexively fictional. And that that veil gets dropped to quite a, quite a large degree um, with the songwriting of the poetry. And I think particularly in in the poems, uh, the, la- the poems that were actually posthumously put together. Um, uh, quite some time after he um, after he was dead, in fact, um, and then you hear this eye coming through really poignantly. And some of those poems talk expressly about um, with one about where he says, you know, given the choice between a, a locomotive, which of course is this, this sort of light motif of the 19th century metonym for progress. I think of Zola's The Betu Men and what having this rampaging rampaging train driving forward. And given the choice in that and a little bird, and he says the little bird, the most fluffy, chirpy thing he can think of, and and he says I, I would always I would take a bird, and um, so you have, you have this very cutesy side of Vion coming through. 
Je voudrais pas crever avant d'avoir connu les chiens noirs du Mexique qui dorment sans rêver, les singes à cul nu, dévoreurs de tropiques, les araignées d'argent au nid truffées de bulles. I wouldn't want to die before I've had the chance to know those black dogs of Mexico who asleep do dreamlessly lie, the bare-assed monkeys, devourers of the tropics, the silver spiders, their nests full of bubbles. I wouldn't want to die without knowing if the moon, which poses as a doubloon, has a pointy side, if the sun is cold, if the four seasons are really only four, without having tried to appear in a frock on a Paris boulevard, without having eyed the eye of the sewer, without having put my cock in any old place bizarre. I wouldn't want it to end without having leprosy or the seven diseases that you catch over there. Neither good nor bad would cause me woe if, if, if I only knew that I'd be first to go. And there is too as well all that I know all that is swell that I know to be so, the green depths of the sea where strands of seaweed waltz over rippled sand, the parched grass of June, the crunch of the soil, the smell of the pine and the kisses so fine of what's her name? Ah, this beauty, voila, my bear cub, Ursula. I wouldn't want to die before I'd consumed her mouth with my mouth, her body with my hands, the rest with my eyes. I'd best say no more, some respect would be wise. I wouldn't want to die before the invention of eternal roses, the two-hour day, the sea on the mountain, the mountain in the sea, the end of all distress, colour printing in the press, the children all happy, and so much more stuff that slumbers in the heads of ingenious engineers, amused arborists, solicitous socialists, urban urbanists and thoughtful thinkers. So many things to remark, to see and contemplate. What a wait to await when fumbling in the dark. And I can see the end, catching up on me fast, with its great ugly face and its wobbly frog arms opening up in embrace. I wouldn't want to die. No, sir, no, ma'am, having seen the chance fly by to sample the torturous taste the taste that's strongest of all. I wouldn't want to die without having first got to try the flavor of death. Je voudrais pas crever, non, monsieur. Non, madame. Avant d'avoir tâté le goût qui me tourmente, le goût qui est le plus fort, je voudrais pas crever avant d'avoir goûté la saveur de la mort. In the mid-1950s, troubled by divorce, debts and a heavy workload, Vion's health went into severe decline. Despite suffering a series of pulmonary edemas, Vion kept up his hectic work schedule, finding time to star in films and translate plays, including several of August Stringberg's most famous works. By 1958, he was close to nervous exhaustion and tried to take more time off to rest. But his multiple activities left him little time for a break. In 1959, Villon became involved with a project to turn J'irai cracher sur Vautant into a film. He began writing a screen adaptation of the book, but after a series of artistic disagreements, Villon was dropped from the project. In April of the same year, Villon played his final cinematic role, featuring alongside Jean Moreau in Roger Vadin's 
Les Liaisons Dangereuses. On June the 23rd, Vion attended a private screening of J'irai Crassi Sur Vautant. Reputedly, a few minutes after the film began, he shouted out, These guys are supposed to be American, my ass, and collapsed into his seat. He later died from a heart attack on his way to hospital. Popular in his own lifetime, Vion later became a darling of the May 68 generation, a relationship melded by Vion's anti-authoritarianism and his position outside the establishment elite. It's this disconnection between public and academic recognition that Alistair Rawls views as Vion's principal legacy. So he remains this, um, this, non, this non-translatable Franco-French phenomenon that the French have a jealousy, almost like a jealousy guarded secret where Sartre and Camus have become worldwide and, and Simone de Beauvoir is you know, clearly worldwide phenomena to the point where Simone de Beauvoir becomes a symbol of American feminism rather than French feminism because she's such, a, such an American export. Um, Vion didn't do that. And it's, it's, I mean, it's kind of maybe odd to ring someone in Australia to do, a, to do an interview on Boris Vion because, because, because they're not in France. You know, they, they, they've never been in France. The, the major critical figures working on here, the first ones, Noel Arnaud was the first who was French-based. But after him, the, the academics, uh, a US-based, Ribal um, uh, both in the, both in, around the Chicago area. Then you've got Marc Lapron now, who's, who's Brazilian by birth, but he's now over in Canada and Victoria. So all Vion scholarship happens outside France because the French have never taken him seriously in the universities and in the bookshops. You say all those things I've just said, and they do constitute his legacy. And I also think they constitute the single biggest problem facing Vion, getting to grips with Vion in the canon, if you like, which is kind of what I'm doing by, along with my colleagues around the world, we're, we're trying to write stuff about Vion, treat, take him seriously and create a critical legacy for him. And People like Marc Lapin is, 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 the big, is the big number one scholar, I suppose, on Boris Vian at the moment. And when I first met him in 2007 at the Sorbonne, and we sort of discussed what the big problems were. And the big problems were that Boris Vian was being studied by people who knew all about Boris Vian. And it was always done from a bio, biographical standpoint. So people would get really excited about how wonderful, what a lovely guy he was, how clever he was, and constantly forgetting to read the text. So the legacy has been of a disconnection between the man who this larger than life personality and this, you know, and this terrible contradiction between this man who, who worked all hours of the day, translated all night long and played jazz all, you know, in the wee hours and then had to go and work in his day job as well and all the time having this heart condition. And you have all that and then you have these wonderful works of art which we then have to try and extract from the dominance. So basically, Vion's scholarship has been dominated by a few, some a priori judgments set by people who are mostly interested in, the, in Vion, the human being. And they've dominated critical discourse for, you know, for the last 50 years or so. So the way in which Vion's studies is now trying to extricate itself from that and, and go back towards, since about 2007, trying to study the works in their own context as works of art. So you do have this legacy, I think, of, of disconnection and of almost of misunderstanding. And I think we need to scratch that surface now and, and get a little bit into the pathos and away possibly from the jokes, I think.
Il soleil fait le tour de la terre Et revient sans s'en faire Et la rue se remplit de travail et de bruit Alors, moi, je me mets au lit 